Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipperer, the club's vice president of media and editorial, and your co-host for today's program. Now, we hope you are staying safe and are well wherever you are. We look forward to seeing you in person one day again, when it's safe, at the Commonwealth Club's headquarters in San Francisco. Until that happens, we are doing all of our programming online. This is just the latest in more than 360 online programs the club has produced during the pandemic. You can find all of our upcoming programs, as well as podcasts and video from our past events at commonwealthclub.org. Now I want to introduce Michelle Miao. She's the producer and the host of The Michelle Miao Show, and she's a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Good to see you again, Michelle. Great to see you, John, and thank you all for joining us, and thanks to the club for bringing these incredible thought leaders to us today. Our guest today is a New York City-based writer. His screenwriting career began when he wrote for ABC Freeform's Gronish in 2018. Previously, he worked at Google in the YouTube and People's Operations Division and as a tech entrepreneur. He has since written and co-written forthcoming TV series and feature films with collaborators Spike Lee, Morgan Freeman, and Will Packer. His op-ed pieces have appeared in the New York Times and Teen Vogue. So he's here today to talk about his latest project, Black Magic, his book. Let's welcome Chad Sanders to the program. Chad, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm grateful. So I really love the way that you ask this question, ask people, you know, where where their upbringing, how did they start, what life was like as a, as a kid. In your own book, you interview subjects who talk about their Black Magic. So I'm just going to go ahead and take a page out of your book <laughs> and ask you, to run through the geographic stops from your life dating back to childhood and what the focus was at each and every one of those stops. Oh, wow. So uh, there have been many stops. I was born in Alexandria, Virginia. I, my first, the first place I lived was Silver Spring, Maryland, um, where I was raised by my parents and I had an older sister who was three years older than me. Um, we moved from a uh, part of the city that was closer to Washington, D.C. when I was six out a little bit further in the suburbs to a very sort of Americana uh, cul-de-sac, you know, single family home neighborhood. And that's where I lived until I was 18. I went to college down in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, I'm sorry. The, the purpose of each of these stops. Well, in Alexandria, the purpose was to make it out of the hospital alive uh, in Silver Spring, the purpose was to, uh, man, as a kid, I don't know what the, every, every felt like every day, every moment had a different purpose. Uh, I had very, um, regimented and, uh, structured parents in terms of the way that they parented us. And so there was sort of an urgency to each hour of each day. It seemed sometimes, um, Sometimes it would be practicing the piano. Sometimes it would be practicing basketball. Sometimes it would be, you know, Cub Scouts, studying for school, reading. Uh, we were generally given about 30 minutes of TV a night, which sometimes would, you know, we'd get to extend to an hour if we were lucky. Uh, but the purpose of my childhood in many ways was, it seems like my parents wanted to expose me to anything that I might have an affinity for or a gift for and teach me how to uh attack that you know if i if if it were something that i was inclined towards um when i got to high school i think is when i really started to reconcile with 
or, or reckon with, you know, my race and my racial identity. Um, I certainly was aware of it well before that, but it, it felt like something I couldn't necessarily, um, like I didn't have any choice over how I, I brought myself to it. In high school is when I really started to become uh, a little bit resistant to the whiteness of our, you know, suburban upbringing. Um, college, I went to school in Atlanta, Georgia. I went to an HBCU called Morehouse College. The purpose there was to have fun and graduate. I think in that order is probably how I, how I, you know, set myself to it. And within that, there was so much purpose that I found once I got there. Um, the school and the neighboring school, Spelman College and Clark Atlanta University were also HBCUs. And they, all three of them were very intentional about teaching us as young black people that uh, we were full people and that we mattered. And uh, we got to sort of choose who who and what we wanted to be. Um, and then I got my first job coming out of Morehouse at Google. And so I moved from Atlanta to uh, Oakland is where I lived in, on, in Lake Merritt. And, you know, I took the those funky Google buses up and down. I guess that was the 101. I can't even remember now, but down to, to San Jose and Silicon Valley every day to the Mountain View headquarters. And my purpose there became to be whatever Google wanted me to be. And I was the the culture of Silicon Valley companies like Google is so all encompassing, you know, it sort of enveloped my entire life at that time as a 22 year old so far away from home and friends, that uh, my purpose was really just to be a part of the club, however I could, you know, every company has a club, and it's the people who seem like they're on the right track, who feel like they um, set the social dynamics, who feel like they get promoted, who seem to understand how things move around. And so um, I was such a fish out of water in a cultural way that my purpose just became, how can I, how can I get in the club and how can I stay there? And that was painful, but I'm sure we'll come back to that. Um, I moved within the company. I moved geographically from Silicon Valley to uh, New York where I worked out of the Chelsea office. I moved to London um, as a part of the, the people operations and YouTube teams there in London and then back to New York. And I left Google in 2014. I went and worked at a tech startup that was based on Wall Street actually. And, and then I moved to Berlin for, uh, for half a year. Um, to to launch an initiative for that company. And then I came back to New York and I've been in New York for the, basically the last nine, 10 years since then. Talk a bit more, if you would, about your father and your mother, but in, in particular in your book, you tell the stories about how protective he was of you and how very important it was to you that he pass on to you certain things about how to survive. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah. I, I was grateful, and or I, I should say I'm grateful now, but I was fortunate to have both parents in my home. Um, my parents have been married for over, I want to say over 35 years now, uh, which is a is, is unusual in some regards and, and also a tremendous blessing. I think as a kid, 
it can be, it can make some things tough because it's hard to get away with stuff. Um, it's hard to hide stuff. It's hard to fake certain, uh, tasks or emotions or whatever it is because you got two sets of eyes who really understand you and really know you keeping a watch on you and then in my case I also had an older sister who um you know now she's my best friend but at the time we kind of went back and forth between being allies and being you know nemeses in some regard so my dad was he came from such a different background than I did he was from uh Detroit City he grew up in the city. I'm from the suburbs. He grew up in the 50s and 60s. I obviously grew up in the 90s. Um, he, his father was in the military. Uh, his mother was a nurse, and they, they were four children in the house. He slept in the kitchen with his brother in a roll-up bed. You know, I think resources were pretty spare, um, but they, they were regimented also, right? Because they had this military influence, and they had, you know, they were, they were making it work in this city as a black family in that time. And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm not certain, but I think when we moved in my childhood from an area closer to DC out further into the suburbs where it was a little bit wider, a little more affluent, I think um, my dad had it in his head to keep a really close eye on how I was growing up and on where I was and who had their, who else had their eyes on me. Um, he, as you'll learn in the book, he would follow the school bus to school some days to make sure that it actually got there. He would watch my basketball practices from outside the window. Sometimes he was very, uh, curt at times with our neighbors and some of the, some of the, frankly, the white kids in the neighborhood who wanted to come, you know, get me out of the house to come play and go in their houses and things. And there were very specific rules about how I was to engage with our neighbors and with the people in our town and, one of those rules was I wasn't really supposed to go in, you know, white kids' houses um, without his supervision or my mom there or someone. And, uh, you know, another was I wasn't supposed to wear hats in the car when I started driving on my own. And I wasn't allowed to have the radio over a certain decibel level. And, you know, he, he trained me on when the police pull you over, um, be polite. Yes, sir. No, sir. Be respectful. Just angle your entire disposition and your and your spirit in that moment into getting to the next moment, like getting out of that circumstance um, and never give, just do what you have to do to avoid giving the police control over you more or less, um, meaning don't get arrested. And those are some of the, you know, that the, the thing I should say about it is he never delivered these messages uh, with melodramatic, intonations but there was just a graveness and a frankness about them um my dad is not particularly verbose anyway he's not a big talker he's he's not a small talker i should say he is pretty direct and pretty clear and he was trying to make sure i could survive living in the suburbs which i think is uh it's an irony that i don't think a lot of white people would understand you know we, we believe that the suburbs are a safe place to grow up and um and they were in a lot of ways for me they were it was a it was a joyful childhood in a lot of ways, but I also came to understand early what eventually I would understand in a much darker and more serious way, which is that um, white environments can be very dangerous for black kids. Yeah. Speaking of your dad and um, and you know just just kind of there's a different set of of rules or different sets of uh, recommendations and how to survive 
the the white world. Um, there is a quote I wanted to read and ask you about in, what he, in which he asks you, uh, what do you think happens to black boys who grow up passing up opportunities in this world? And, and you know, you you mentioned this question he had asked you at what, when you were a kid. My question is, you know, kind of how has that changed as far as your answer as a kid? Maybe you're more curious how to answer that. Like, what do you mean? And then now as an adult, as a black man, I'm sure of it that you have many answers to that question. Yeah. So one of the ways that my dad and I really connected was um, he was a division one basketball player and he was my basketball coach for most of my life until high school. And then even when I had my, you know, a new coach in high school, he was still a very present figure in the sport for me. And we would always, you know, dissect my games, watch the videos, talk about every decision I made out on the court. Um, And so the context of what he was telling me was, he, he, I guess he saw me being passive in a game and I probably was being overly um, deferential to the other players or whatever. And some of that is just my nature of how I play the game. Like I, I, uh, I like, I am a team player offensively. Right. But in that moment he saw I was open and I didn't take the shot. And the truth is at some, in some points in my life as a young, you know, athlete, I, I got the, um, what's the word, the, um, the, 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 the yips, like I would be afraid to take some, you know, certain shots at different times. And some of that's because my eyes went bad when I was 13 and I didn't want to play with rec specs. So I couldn't really see the rim that clearly anyway, but it was true. He, what he saw in me. And again, this is sort of the, you know, the gift of having a hyper aware and hyper present parent is he noticed what happened in me. Like I was something scared me. And so I didn't act boldly. And if I fast forward throughout my life, after he gave me that feedback, I I really stopped letting fear control my decisions about whether or not to act boldly, um, especially in a career sense. All of, you know, everything that happened that's happening, like this is scary right now, right? Like putting my first book out and talking about it to strangers and, you know, standing behind it as to say, this is the representation of my life and my story that I believe is true and that I want you to see. It's all very scary. And I think all of us can probably relate to the fear we feel constantly when we're stepping into a new part of our lives, a new part of our careers. And I think what my dad wanted me to understand at that time and what I now understand as an adult is those opportunities are not infinite, um, especially for Black people, especially for most minorities. So I did not have, you know, I couldn't defer and pass on big opportunities um, the way somebody else with different privileges might be able to. And and that was the lesson. That's what I took out of it. A lot of teenagers go through their rebellious years and they consciously trying to, you know, step away from their parents and, and, and reject some of their values and such. Was that different from you? understanding that what he was teaching you was both survival and success uh things that he cared very deeply about no it wasn't different for me at all um it was worse for me i i mean i was i am a i don't even really love this term but i can be a defiant person i have um i have 
what's the, I have uh, authority issues, I guess, is the way to describe it. Um, I question and pick at uh, authority and other people making decisions for me. And I don't know if that is how I was born. I don't know if that's genetics or if that is a response to having hyper aware type A, you know, present parents. I don't know which one of those is true, but even though I knew and understood that my dad loved me and and that's, and, and my mom also, and that's why they were so influential and so present, it didn't stop me from also wanting to carve that space to make my own decisions. And I think, you know, frankly, even now in my early thirties, that's something that I, um, it's a, it's a part of every decision that I make, especially with people who are older and wiser is that I want to experience the adventure of making my own decisions and make and getting them wrong. Like, I think that's where the art and creativity is, is in some of those wrong decisions that you make and the ways that they gnarl and, you know, ruffle like this clean little life and path that you think you have. Um, but wise people who care about me always want to help me make quote unquote better decisions. And so it's a con it's still a struggle. I, I think that one thing I learned from the, from the industry, from Silicon Valley is there have been many great companies that have had tremendous success that started off as some other bad idea that didn't work. And if they had, if the founders of those companies or the entrepreneurs behind those companies had listened to someone who said, that's a terrible idea, it's never going to work, they might have been dead in their tracks. And we might not have the Googles and Cisco's and LinkedIn's and Ubers of the world. And the same is true as a writer and as an artist, you know, if, if, if at any point I let somebody tell me that's not the way to go um, and I just listen to it and it kills my idea, then I can't make anything. And the reason why I even bring that up is because it can feel sometimes as a black person that the walk you have, the tightrope you have to walk is so rigid that there's no space for those types of mistakes that you learn from that stimulate creativity and build amazing things. You talk about racial duality with each of your uh, interview subjects, the black leaders who are featured in the book. And, um, you know, in my mind, it was, I, I, I had experienced, you know, similar experiences of racial duality, but I didn't know that that's what it's called. What is racial duality? I don't know if that's what it's called. That's what I called it. Um, what the way I think of it, and you'll see every, every one of the 15 subjects in the book sort of saw it differently or, or saw it in their own way. But in my mind, it's, it's everything, let's say as, as surface level as my intonations, my cadence, um, the way that I talk, the way that I pronounce certain words, the way that I dress, the way that I make eye contact, the way that I give a handshake, uh, you know, Anytime I change those things to make someone and specifically often to make white people feel more comfortable or more connected to me, that is a form of creating a duality in myself. It's, it's presenting to them or performing a different version of myself. And then when I, you know, am amongst a different group of people, not even necessarily black people, but let's just say, you know, Latinx people or Asian people or whomever, 
and I bring a different version of myself, then now I've started to create, there's this duality in, in who I am and how I'm presenting myself. And I think, you know, the gift of that is it's built on an exercise of observation and empathy, which is to see someone create some understanding of where they come from and how they see the world and sort of give them what they might be asking for, what they might want out of that. And that's an important skill set to have in product development and sales and marketing. The danger of it is you can lose a hold of who you actually are when there is no audience, when there is nobody on the other side looking at you and telling you who they want you to be by the way that they're postured or talking to you or listening to you or not listening to you. So that's what racial duality is to me. You mentioned a little while ago, uh, kind of even how this going out and kind of discussing your life and and the painful lessons you learned and such is, is kind of a bit difficult. In the beginning of the book, you also you're, you talk about you know you talk to more than two hundred maybe it wasn't the beginning somewhere in the book you mentioned you talk to more than two hundred people for this book from all walks of life. Some of them are big names, but you're right. Quote: Most celebrities were not willing to take such risks, and thus likely will not know the names most of the interview subjects in this book. Why do you think black celebrities wouldn't open up this way or want to reveal some of their painful? I mean, is it is it the, the, the fear that it'll make them look bad in the eyes of their supporters or of, you know, white culture, you know, scrutinizing them? I and mean, what, what is your thinking? Well, I think it can be bad for your bank account to upset white people. Uh, I think it can be. And if you're a public figure and you are also often available to people's criticism through social media or just by walking down the street, uh, you can you can incite unpleasant interactions. I don't I don't fault the famous people who don't want to unnecessarily create those reactions. I I blame I blame a society that isn't ready to listen to the truth about what people have experienced or what people have gone through racially in their lives. Um, I think, you know, on the other side of things, I really admire and celebrate the people in this book who are also leaders across industries, tech, finance, religion, science, academia, activism, media, who these people also have, you know, they have white clients, they have white colleagues, they have white subordinates, they have white um, audiences to, to keep in mind. And, and yet still, I was blown away by the blowtorch that people came with to share these experiences, everything from suicide attempts, to because of how terrible it felt to be black in certain places to, uh, being called by close friends at, at get togethers to quitting and leaving industries altogether as I did, because you felt like who you are doesn't fit. Um, so I think in that regard, the celebrities could learn something from people who have real jobs. Says the man who now works in, in the media industry surrounded by celebrities. <laughs> Michelle? 
Yeah, um, I know for sure, you know, uh, some folks tuning in right now, especially we're here in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, want to hear about Google and your experiences there, especially the recent news, uh, their firing of an AI uh, ethnic researcher. Um, and what, you know, that culture was like, I'm going to read a quote here from one of the interview subjects. I didn't feel comfortable enough being black, which is one of the main reasons I think a lot of blacks are not successful in tech companies, especially Google and Amazon's, because they don't feel accepted into the culture. The culture is not made for them. It's made for the masses of the white majority. Um, yeah, let's talk about that and what, what that means. I think for many people, you think about Google, it's a global, huge company. They represent everybody. Yeah. Google is very powerful and I mean, what an understatement, right? Way to, way to start. It's scary to talk about Google in public. It was scary to write about my experience at Google and I, and I went easy. Um, I admire the people who, you know, do these long tweet threads and talk about their experiences because that's scary to do. What I will say is that while my experience at Google did make me, you know, I did feel that way. I did feel like this is a club that feels like that feels like an Ivy League fraternity in some regards. Um, I, in doing the research for this book and in getting to know other companies and frankly, in moving into another industry that operates very similarly, this is not a Google specific problem. Although Google is in some ways a shining star that other companies want to emulate, I don't think Google created white guy nepotism. Uh, if we look at the tops of these companies, we know only 1% of Fortune 500 CEOs are black. We know many of these big companies like Google, Facebook, JP Morgan, they do diversity reports every year and generously uh, less than six, 7% of their employees are black. There's a problem. There's an issue. And every time I go and do like a corporate talk or every time I go and talk to a company about my experience as a black person working in corporate America, I try to go do some research beforehand if they're, especially if they're, you know, a, um, a public company where I can find all their information publicly. I go look up the C-suite executives, the CEO, the CFO, the CPO, whoever. I go look up the majority shareholders. I go look up the founders. And it's usually a group of five to 15 white guys, maybe with a white woman thrown in who runs HR or, you know, a black person thrown in who you know, works on the legal team or whatever. And these are generally companies that have this issue that they bring to every conversation where they say, we, we go and we hire black people and we just can't figure out how to keep them, how to help them move up the company, how to perform highly. It just doesn't work. And it feels clear to me that the issue is that the people at the top don't look like the people at the bottom. And so there is no real there is no real energy to try to move them up and further and further into that prestigious little clubhouse. The irony, or I guess the conflict that I always feel when I talk about Google is that I learned, I learned how to work at Google. Like I was able to take what I learned there and apply it to 
this other industry, which is supposed to be so hard and so challenging and so like tough to get in and the systems and the ways of thinking and the ways of being creative and the ways of disruption that I learned from that company, Google really have been a tremendous help for me, but I still, I must be honest. I still am resentful that I felt like I was always an outsider trying to be a part of the boys club and it just was never going to happen. You, you mentioned the statistics of the low levels of black employees at Google and other big tech companies, other big companies as well. But um, there was that moment where Silicon Valley seemed to be having a come to Jesus moment on its, its low diversity levels. And they were making all these giant promises a few years ago. And then the next year the stats came out and they were little, if at all changed. Um, your your book, and you even have a, a, a part of your book where you're saying, who is this book for? And it's 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 not written to the CEO of, of Google and, and Amazon and such. But what would you, if, if you, you know, you, you say you go and you talk to these companies, what do you say to the C-suite people? There's, there's the one thing of you don't look like the people you're trying to attract. What other things could they do so that you would, you uh, another young you coming into their company would have had a better experience? In my opinion, the only thing that's going to make sustainable changes is to change what their boardrooms look like to, uh, you know, the most provocative thing I would say is step down and name a successor that looks different from you. Um, of course, nobody's going to do that. As, as they say in sports, you don't fire the owner. But my point of view is that it it's just that's I don't know. I don't understand. Like. Is it human nature? Is it inertia? Is it momentum? What is the reason why a room full of white guys can't create an environment that is conducive to the growth and comfort and safety of people that look different than that? I don't know the answer to that, but I, but I now at this point feel really convinced that it's true. I, I that that is this that that is this the case. So my message to them would probably fall on deaf ears because it would be to say get rid of one of your friends and replace them with somebody who looks different from you. My message to people who have a toxic environment, a toxic relationship with their employer is the same as I would give them if they have a toxic relationship with a spouse or, or a substance abuse problem. It would be get out of there and figure something else out. And this book is meant to be written in such a way that I'm offering to them what the tools and tactics they already have are that are going to help them if they do decide to get out or if they want to stay and try to navigate the labyrinth. Um, but the, the short answer to your question, and it's unfortunate, is I don't think those people want to hear what I have to say. We do. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, staying on that topic, you know, uh, last summer after the death of George Floyd, it seemed like a lot of people were waking up to the racial injustice. And all of a sudden you had large corporations, you had organizations who were announcing that they were hiring or they were promoting an African-American person or that they were donating large sums of money to racial justice. I'm not sure what, what that actually means or what that entails, uh, but would love to hear your perspective on 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 you know what what happened, what transpired with all of these companies now who seem to be, I guess the word is woke. <laughs> um, yeah. And if you feel that you know this is all pro, is this progress? Is this is this you know finally they're they're going to do something about this? 
progress. I I have such a uh, confusing relationship with that word right now. It sometimes feels like the opposite of completion. Um, it feels so incremental. Uh, I'm a millennial. We do not like incrementalism. Um, we like this idea that something can just be done. Like we want to be the CEO of something, we go start something. Um, is it progress? I think it's awareness, you know, referencing the diversity reports that you just, you just mentioned, uh, in the last question, we all now, no one can deny that this is a problem. No one can deny that there's a representation problem in these corporations, but awareness is not the same as change. And it's certainly not the same as progress. Um, in some ways it's a little bit more humiliating to know that we're all aware now that this is an issue. And yet, and I don't, I, I got to take a little of the honest off all the middle managers between Reed Hastings at the top of Netflix and whoever works at the bottom, all those people in between, I'm just going to not pay attention to them for a second. The leaders, the people who own the company, the majority shareholders, the board, the C-suite exec executives, that's the company. Everybody else is a practitioner. Everyone else is a steward of their desires. So if they wanted this thing, if they wanted it fixed, they would fix it. So one of our audience asks, um, so you work in Silicon Valley, then you went to Europe, you were in Berlin working there. Uh, they were asking about any differences in culture or, or uh, workplace culture between the two. I loved, working in Google London was like one of the most enjoyable, it was like the most fun I've ever had, some of it. Um, and then when I worked in Berlin, I was there by myself. We didn't have an office or small startup. It was just me wandering around Berlin, partying and working. And that was awesome too, but I, I can't- It's a good city for that. Environment there, yeah. At London, in, in London, I there was something, I did find a new strength behind my voice. There was something to being a Black American in another country where they certainly had preconceptions of who and what I was probably formed mostly by a couple people that they had met in their lifetimes and then TV and movies and music. It felt like they liked me more. Uh, it felt like I got to sort of define for them who I was. And it felt like there was more of an open-minded curiosity about that than a, let's see if this guy is going to confirm what we already know about this type of people. There was freedom. I felt, I felt, I should say, I felt freedom. And I'm, you know, I understand that there's racism in every country where there is race. And so I don't mean to say that that's the experience for everybody that lives in the UK that looks like me. But my experience was I felt, and maybe it wasn't even truly freedom or weightlessness, but I felt like the first modicum of weightlessness that I had felt since being at Morehouse. And I started becoming myself and that changed me. That made me, I keep saying this word, but it made me bolder. It made me come back to the United States with a different energy about how I was going to do the things that I cared about. And the, 
the truth is I ended up leaving the company because I came back with that boldness, but I was not met with particular receptiveness to that boldness. And then I realized maybe this corporate thing isn't, isn't for me. I, I want to follow up on that because you, you mentioned you, you, you moved when you started at Google, you moved to uh, 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 Oakland, California from Atlanta. You had grown up around the Washington DC area. Um, do you think that you would have either felt differently working in, say there was a Google office in Atlanta or in, you know, Virginia or Maryland or whatever, right near, you know, in an area you grew up, do you think you would have been more yourself from the start? Had you gone there where you had a base of friends around you and that even if it was going, you know, after work and seeing your friends and talking about this horrible workplace, or in other words, how much were you, you know, restricting yourself because you were in a completely new part of the, of the country and, and away from all that family and friends? The the separation was definitely a factor and not even just the separation, because like I just said, I had the time of my life in London, but Silicon Valley has such a crafted and in many ways, sterile and um, monochrome sort of texture. You know, it is, uh, God, I feel bad saying these things. To, to you guys, but like, it is, it felt like at times it felt like a frat house. It felt like, um, it felt like one big craft beer and it, so it wasn't so much as just the separation from people who I cared about as much as it was also, I did not know, I should say how to access anything outside of that Silicon Valley culture there. It didn't feel like I could reach it. I would wake up in the morning at 7 a.m. I would get on a Google bus at 8 a.m. I would travel down to Mountain View. I was at the office eating all day because there's free food there. So I never left that campus until I left at 6.30, got back on that same bus to Oakland, got off the bus at 7.30, it was nighttime, so I would go home and, you know, hang out for a couple hours and go to sleep. So in a way, it was, it became my life. It became my world. And my value was whatever I felt like it had been at work that day. That was it. You um you asked some of your subjects in the book, you know, kind of what they would say to another young, you know, Black person who could step into leadership or or any, actually any any young black person, uh, you know, watching or listening to you and reading your book and you talking about finally not giving a crap and, and being bold, being yourself, all of that led to just kind of break, the, breaking free and, and becoming very successful, leaving Silicon Valley and then to, you know, getting a book deal, a movie, TV series. I think lots of young people would say, I mean, I want to do that. I, I want to be just like you. What yeah. would you say to the young black folks who are saying that to themselves right now? I would say the most important thing is to be just like you, um, which is to say leaving. I, I don't, I don't recommend everybody to just quit their job and try to do whatever they think is cool. I think 
first of all, it's important for me to mention also, I had some very, I had a couple very scary years after I left corporate America where my income was sparse. Uh, I was living with not very much. Um, I missed birthdays and baby showers and weddings and I lost friends because of that because I was making decisions to invest everything in this journey to being a writer. That would have been stupid if I wasn't good at writing. Um, and that's what I'm trying to say here is be honest with yourself about what your gifts are. I have been writing since I was three years old when my sister taught me how to do it. I was doing it all the time anyway. It wasn't like I it wasn't like I quit and tried to be a professional trombonist. Um, so my point in saying that is that, of course, you it's so cliche, but of course you can do something for a living if you are great at it and if you are willing to sacrifice and invest in it. And the sacrifices are real. Like I said, they are, in some cases, friendships. They are time. They are some embarrassment. They are living with very little. Um, they are dating while having very little. So if you are willing to do all that stuff, and if you if you have a gift, which I'm sure you do, and if that gift lends to what you're trying to accomplish, then I would recommend it because it is a cool and fun way to live. Uh, but it might take a couple years or longer. One of your father's rules that you relate in the book is, quote, don't get your sense of self-worth from depictions of Black people in the news, popular music, or popular movies and television. They will destroy you, unquote. I'm assuming he was referring to the negative and, and kind of manipulative uh, depictions of Black people in so much of popular culture. But what about positive depictions? I mean, are, are, aren't we hear a lot of the importance of that in you know representation on the screen in politics and movies and such like that? Well, the irony is that I write screenplays for a living, but I wasn't really allowed to watch very much TV. And I think the lesson there, you know, I don't, I still don't watch very much TV all the time for my job. People are like, have you watched this? Have you watched that? Have you watched this? And I'm a snob about it. I watched the stuff that feels to be like the consensus best stuff. Like I watched the Sopranos. I watched Game of Thrones. I watched the wire. I watch, you know, whatever I think is going to be worth those hours. And I, I don't put that much of my attention into other things until lately, just obviously for promotion, I haven't spent a lot of time on social media. Um, I don't mean that to be holier than thou, but that really is because my parents trained my eyeballs and my brain to not fixate on screens. Um, we did watch a ton of sports and I still do. In a way that's meditation for me. But I say all that to say, I don't, I don't think you should let anybody else's creation define who you are. Um, positive, negative, however you want to, you know, however you want to evaluate it. I don't think we should lean on other people's crafted images and writing to craft our own identities. Um, I'm trying to think, what are the positive depictions of Black people in the media? I mean, in my opinion, honestly, most of it comes from sports, specifically the NBA, which I think has a very positive, um, positive image at this point in time. But 
I I see the way that stuff gets made now, now that I'm kind of under the hood. I see who makes the decisions on what gets made. I see how often those decisions are made based on dilution and lowest common denominator and how can we reach the most audiences. And I think it's very dangerous for anyone to watch TV or Instagram or TikTok or Facebook and think that what they're looking at has much of anything to do with who they actually are. On that note, I I loved what you wrote uh, your article in time time magazine um, in talking about, you know, now, you know, black being trendy, uh, black content and, or stories of, of black folks. Now, you know, you, you go on any of the streaming platforms and it's, it's, it's like it's entire channel. It's telling you, you know, here it is. And, you know, you're going to be a good person. You're not racist. (laughs) You're watching all these films. I don't know. These are just some things that I feel like when it's jumping out at me and it almost feels like, like I'm cheating, you know, racial justice in a way. Um, but yeah, I would love to hear you just talk again about what you meant in your, your article. All of this content may come at a cost and kind of what we should be mindful of. And while it's great, it's great that, you know, these studios and these companies are now wanting the content, but making it trendy in this way, what that actually means for or undoing, you know, racial injustice. Yeah, well, they they want the content because it's hot. They want it because it's it's pop culture right now. They want it because people are clicking. They and these people are middle managers. They make very, very, very uh, unsophisticated decisions. So my warning to myself and others is, I would avoid being typecast or siloed as uh, a creator of quote unquote black content. Um, Because while that is lucrative right now, and while I would advise grabbing the money while it's there um, for, for me personally, I think it's important to use that as a foundation to a much more diverse portfolio of media creation than to get siloed as this person makes black stuff. Um, I think if I could use a an analogy, I think about diversity and inclusion departments at big companies, which are primarily seen as cost centers by the people at the top of those companies. And when budgets get tight and when things, when when winds blow and sort of the company has to make decisions about where the budget cuts happen, which means where people are getting fired, a lot of times, the finger points to those DNI departments that are not serving the bottom line. And if you're completely reliant on somebody's goodwill and wanting to do, you know, wanting to do charity for your paycheck, that's really dangerous. And so I, I, I see the same thing being true about what feels like this new fervent, you know, passionate investment in black content in media, um, that's real and that's happening and people are getting paid from doing it. Uh, I just, I wouldn't anchor my entire ship on that. And I, and, and that's why I personally, I also don't, you know, it came up in a conversation yesterday 
I wanted to be clear. Like I'm a writer. I make, I make TV. I make movies. I, I make media. Um, I'm not an activist. Uh, now if my art serves activism, that's great. But I think we have to be intentional and specific about these things because what is valuable to somebody today, tomorrow can be a nuisance to them and they will dismiss you. Um, if you don't serve the bottom line anymore. Let's talk a little bit about the book. Um, now it was just released two days ago, officially, right? So talk a bit about, I mean, you said you've been writing for pretty much your whole life. What was it like? And when did you make the decision to not only write a book, but to write this book and, and how did it come together when you were reaching out to people to talk with and, and was it easier than you thought it would be harder? What tell us about it. Um, it, so I, I had the vision for the book. I was 26, maybe I was working at that tech startup on, on wall street, the name, you know, the double entendre of it all. It just, it kind of hit me, um, out of nowhere. And it, it's one of those weird things when you have a vision, like I could see the whole thing and I had no idea how to make it actually happen. I didn't know how the publishing industry worked. I didn't know about, you know, getting a book agent and all these other things, um, all these other parts of the sequencing. But when I wrote my TV pilot, I, I got signed by WME, the, the, the agency. And, you know, you go into a big room that has a big wooden table and, I sat down and like all these executives come in and one of them was a book agent. And I, then it was like, Oh, okay, this is one plus one equals two. Now I have all these other faculties, not just for writing screenplays, but if I want to do a book, if I want to make a documentary, I have their professionals here who know how to do this. So Eve Adderman, my book agent, she, I pitched her the book over the phone one day and she jumped on it. And you kind of just know by someone's reaction, if, if it's like, if it's something, you know, and her reaction was like, yeah, this is something. So I, starting in 2017, I set sail over the next two and a half years after we signed the deal with with um, Simon & Schuster, really just interviewing anybody who I thought had an interesting or admirable job or career path that I wanted to learn from. And I reached out to a zillion people. Um, through all different faculties, people I knew, people I didn't know, people who were friends of friends, family, whatever. And I got around 200 conversations out of it. And the 15, I, I honestly would say just like the 15 best went in the book. And that's to say the 15 that felt the most honest, the 15 that spanned the most emotions in their storytelling and the 15 that I thought I could take clear and specific identifiable lessons and tactics from, um, those are the ones that I put in the book. Uh, what I was looking for was, again, I started when I was still trying to be the, you know, the CEO of a big company. And that, that vision has changed in the means that I want to approach it, but not necessarily in the goal. Um, but I was asking questions that I needed answers to myself. and. I didn't want to write a book like The Secret. Like I didn't want to write The Four Agreements. I didn't want to write something that was um, very spiritually satisfying, but not executable 
in the same way. I wanted to write something closer to the four hour work week, to be honest, something more like good to great or zero to one. And I think that combination of applicable, identifiable, specific, and traumatic, triumphant, happy, sad, scary, funny is what I ended up with. Which is the title, Black Magic. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I loved about the book, besides getting to know you, is that it validated these lived experiences of Black people in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, as we wind down here on time, I think that we have to talk a whole lot more about these things, that it, it really shouldn't be swept under the rug or, or, you know, even people who are not Black in the workplace you're you know it it's happening you're witnessing it shouldn't discuss and shouldn't talk about it but that corporate world is pretty scary you're always scared of losing your job um so if you wouldn't mind just talking about the importance of being able to speak about your experiences to validate what you're going through and you know kind of how you navigate the workplace going forward as a black person i think as any person it is enlightening and it stems creative thoughts when you see that other people are going through what you're going through and you see how they navigated you might not take the exact same steps but maybe steps one through three and steps seven through eight can be the same i had a conversation with a 65 year old white guy whose family lost their 17 year old daughter to cancer a year ago who said i read your book i'm not black obviously but damn, if I haven't experienced some trauma and it's helping my wife and I think about not how we're going to get through this, because how do you get through it? I don't know. But once you do get through it, how we can look at what we just went through, the pain, the suffering, the heartache, and take what's going to be helpful to us and valuable as we move forward. That's what this book is about. It's <clears throat> It's the opposite of consumerism. It is How do I use what I already have? And if you're black, what you already have is like Liam Neeson and Taken, a set of very particular skills and tactics from navigating craziness and urgency and death around you and fear and this boogeyman that you're not allowed to be happy and be self-activated. And if you've gotten through all that just to a cubicle or a pitch meeting, or college, or a job, whatever you're doing is powerful to get there. And you need to know what it is that you've done so you can use it for for your own devices. This is not the question I was going to ask, but just kind of along those lines. Do you at this point in your life, do you feel your success? Do you feel your being able to do, whether you're succeeding at a specific project or not, do you feel you're doing what you are meant to do and you're doing it in a fulfilling way? Well, those are two different questions. I I mean, I'll take the latter first. So I think I'm doing what I'm meant to do uh, because I've been doing this my whole life. Um, Ray Lewis used to say about football, you know, you, you, you pay me for Saturday through what he said, you pay me through Monday for Monday through Saturday, Sundays you get for free. Um, I was getting paid for 
you know, going and working in H HR at Google, but like what I would spend my free time doing was this writing, creating, writing screenplays, trying to make like trying to do this other stuff. Now that this is my job, quote unquote, this is like breathing. You know, I've been doing this since I was a little kid. So it feels natural. It feels like a fish swimming. It So I don't have to question whether or not I'm meant to do this. I, I know that much. Now, am I a success? Um, I'm getting, I'm probably getting a B plus today. I think I had an A plus yesterday. Um, every day, that's the question is different. You know, did I do, did I do what God asked of me today is basically the, the question I ask myself sometimes. And um, the answer varies. But I I think I I think I am a success today. Yeah, I think I'm doing the right thing today. Uh, I think you're a success, and I love the book. I think everybody should grab a copy. So do it today. Black Magic by Chad Sanders. Chad, thank you so much for being here with us uh, at the Commonwealth Club of California. Thank you. This was great. Th these were very stimulating questions. Thanks, y'all. So, John, you have the last words. I will take the honor of again thanking Chad Sanders. Uh, for his book, his book, Black Magic, like we just said, it's just went out on sale. You can find it online if you actually have any books in, what is it, bricks and mortar or genuine bookstore in your neighborhood. I'm sure they've got it as well. But uh, check it out, and you can find out more about our upcoming programs here at the Commonwealth Club at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. So stay safe, everyone, and have a good rest of your week.